Welcome to Soundpost, a podcast dedicated to exploring the meaning of concert music in today's world through conversations with its leading artists. I am Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I am Raul Gomez, and all the way from her home in Barcelona, Spain, Gabriela Montero. Gabi, how are you? Hello, it's great to be with you. <laughs> Look, I, 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 I'm going to get things started here. I have a story. It's very short. Thanks to both of you, I... Raul Gomez, am a Latin Grammy winner, Page Turner. <laughs> you are. Or Gabriela the, Montero. That's, that's before the iPad thing came out. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> the iPad wouldn't win a Latin Grammy. I, I know. And yeah. what, should we start with that? Because I think that's such a special moment for, for you too and for the Orchestra of the Americas. You guys have worked together for a long time. Well, that project was my first recording with Carlos and it was a, a very special project because it included the Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto and also my piece Expatria. Expatria speaks very, very directly about the situation in Venezuela and for you know, it, it illustrates very much, you know, the violence and the chaos and the pain that we feel as Venezuelans. And to have a piece like that, that is so politically and socially uh, frontal in the classical music world and to be recognized by an award like the Latin Grammy was, was a, a major deal. It felt as though people were really listening. Carlos, do you remember where we recorded that? How could I forget? We recorded it in your country, in yep. San Jose. In el Teatro, Teatro Nacional. Teatro Nacional de Costa Rica. And I, I have to tell you that I have the most incredible memories of everything around that recording. As with everything that happens in our wonderful countries of Latin America, there are amazing amount of anecdotes and unexpected things that happen. Uh, but the result is is and uh, was absolutely wonderful. I have great memories of the Fazioli piano that you had. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> the Teatro Nacional in San Jose is, is a beautiful old theater, but it's slightly uh, lopsided, the stage. <laughs> so it kind of starts higher. And then by the time you get to the edge of the stage where the piano is, then the stage is uh, it's lopsided, so we had to put some. We had to build blocks <laughs> so it was more or less at the same height, so I wouldn't be crooked playing. So these are the little things that happen in Latin America that make it so uh, colorful. Of course, when you hear the recording, uh, you don't hear any of that. No, <laughs> you hear uh, uh, an incredible performance mm. uh, that that is as live as it can ever be because. You, that's the way you are. Every time we've played a piece, it sounds like you are actually making it up as you go along in the good sense uh, that Rachmaninoff II, a piece that is so well known, is, is absolutely fresh in your hands. And of course, Expatria was new to every, everyone, but I think that we all got the message right away. Mm -hmm about yes. what you wanted to say. And, and uh, I also remember that we had the chance to have rehearsals where you explained to us, um, to me and to the musicians of the Orchestra of the Americas, you explained what the piece was about. Mm -hmm. And since some mm -hmm. of them probably 
uh, were or are uh, living through that. Uh, so I, I was very, very powerful experience. Very, very powerful experience. For me too. And, and I was so honored to do it with all of you and to feel like it was really a conversation between family, you know, from different parts of the Americas. And of course, a few years after that recording, you, Gabriela, and Carlos Miguel with the Orchestra of the Americas uh, played your piano concerto number one. But before we talk about that, which hap uh, the recording happened in Frutillar, Chile, let's go way back because I know that you two are uh, frequent collaborators, but do you guys remember the first time you worked together? You know, maybe if we start counting years, we are going to get <laughs> depressed, not because of the amount of years, yeah. but because that means that we're not as young as we think. I actually remember exactly the first time I, I heard you, Rolf Meyerwender, who is a common friend from a long, long time ago and, you know, just a music fanatic, decided to bring you along to Mexico when we were rehearsing mm -hmm. in Cocoyoc with Paquito de Rivera. Yeah. And I was playing violin in the orchestra then. That's right. That's true. So we were all there. And what is amazing is that an organization like the Orchestra of the Americas could have the flexibility of saying, okay, let's listen to this pianist that myself, I knew about you, but vaguely and mostly through Rolf. And I remember that uh, Paquito and I listened to you and you just started one of your improvisations. And uh, I was like, I can't believe this exists, <laughs> this, this ability, this musicianship. I think you were going through a difficult time in your life then. And, and uh, that's, that's, that's why we had the honor of meeting you because ever since that time, you've been busy every single week, every single year, but we had the honor of getting to know you, of hearing you play and we decided, I have to say I decided because I'm, I was the crazy one. I said, okay, we cannot improvise a piano concerto with Gabriela and our programs are already so long. And at that time they were even longer. Mm -hmm. uh, so the only moment where we can put Gabriela is in intermission. <laughs> uh, so I, I remember that you were part of our intermission. The, the, the first time was in Cuernavaca, in the cathedral in Cuernavaca. And you were an amazing, an amazing experience for everyone. I'm sure people remember <laughs> your, your intervention more than the concert itself. So that was our first meeting. Uh, and that was our first... 2004. 2004. 2004. Okay, so let's oh make it God. official. Many, many, many years ago. So, and since, since then, we've collaborated... Uh, many more times than, than we probably have time to talk about. But what, what I can say is that wherever it's been and however it's been, it's always been amazing and it's always been absolutely eye-opening. How can one create out of nothing or out of three notes sung by an audience member a whole sonata, a whole fugue, a whole creation of music? That which I've been witnessing for uh, 16 years. Did I make my calculation right? 16 years. 
is something that I understand you've had for your whole life. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to ask you to tell us how old and how you discovered this. Let me say something about you before I go into the past. Um, you know, for as a soloist, I spend, say, about 80% of the year by myself, you know, traveling and um, or practicing in a room. And in your case, you know, when when we met and when we, we started to get to know each other and, and planned different concerts and recording projects together, I always felt that I really had an accomplice, a musical accomplice who who was willing to fly with me wherever I decided to take off, you know, to. And it means so much in, in this uh, very kind of uh, solitary existence that you live as a soloist, to have people like you. And, and it's something that Sam and I always talk about, you know, my husband and I, is, is what an amazing ally you are. You know, with, uh, with the improvisation, it, it's, still, it's still funny for me that it's such a special thing when people hear it and there are so many, you know, amazing reactions because for me, it's just like toasting bread, basically. It's just something that just happens. That's, it's very natural. Improvisation was always, always something I did since I was a little girl. And when I started playing the piano at seven months old and I started to play by ear the melodies that my mom would sing me to put me to sleep in Caracas, um, that that period where I started to, by myself, approach the piano and start to play all of these melodies um, also coincided with exploring the piano through improvisation. And nobody ever told me what it was. Nobody knew. My family are not musicians. It was just something I always did. I sat down and I told stories, even as a little girl. You know, I was two years old, three years old, and I have like 200 tapes of cassette tapes of that time and where I'm improvising. And when I get to age six, seven or eight, the improvisations are so complex and usually all in A minor or D minor <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I love my minor key improvs. And they're, they're really, really complex. And sometimes they sound like Kinastera, like Bartok, like Stravinsky, com com composers I had never heard. So these mus musical idioms just kind of came out of nowhere. And I think it's very much an emotional response that I have to the instrument and to sound and where I just completely um, give myself and share my imagination and also my feelings, how I feel about things. Gabby, have you, do you have some un improvised encores that you can look back and remember that were especially significant to you? I mean, I've done, at this point, thousands, so I, I can't really remember. Uh, specifically, I think I, I see them as um, a statement in the moment of, of who I am that day. And, and sometimes they're very humorous, sometimes they're very sad. It depends, you know, and, and the, the conversation with the public when I ask for the theme is, is something that very much shapes what kind of mood the improvisation is going to be in. But I have to say there's one improvisation which comes to mind that we, I did in Ciudad de Mexico when we did, I think it was the Latin Concerto, Carlos, over there. Yeah. And I, somebody asked me to improvise on El Alma Llanera. And El Alma Llanera is for Venezuelans. It's like an anthem. And it's so close to our hearts. And I remember 
that when I started to improvise on it, I just started to cry. I started to sob. <laughs> Actually, it was it was filmed for TV, so I think it's out there on YouTube and you can watch it. I, I haven't wanted to see it, <laughs> so you don't want to see yourself crying, you know. But um, I just let go. I completely let go. And it's one of those moments where I remember and I thought, I can't hold this in, you know. One that I will always remember, and this is a, you know, it's a very different type of context, but Carlos, you'll remember this one too. We were in Chile with the Orchestra of America. But that was not in Chile. That in was Chile? That wasn't in Panama. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Here's the anecdote, and it's absolutely, <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely priceless. We always do a first performance in a, like, place that will allow us to have a, different kind of more direct contact with the audience. Mm -hmm. So we did it at this kind of uh, big, big meeting place that a hotel had in Panama. And it was completely packed, absolutely packed. And when you said, can anybody sing anything? Uh, you know, normally in the US or in UK, in Europe, people react like is she serious <laughs> uh, so it takes a little bit of time for people to realize that actually you are serious and second well i can sing something and she'll improvise so but in this case a nanosecond after you said can anybody sing anything this lady with a red dress that was <laughs> as tight as i can ever imagine a dress to be mm-hmm. And as small, <laughs> started singing a very romantic uh, song in Spanish. But she took. The I don't remember the song. Mm-hmm. It's like suddenly uh, this was her concert. Well, the problem <laughs> is that all that Gabriela needs is like four notes or a melody, and there's you know her her brain is already processing that, and and there we go. Well, the problem is this lady sang the whole song. Then I remember another one, which is very emotional and very present for everyone in Orquesta Sinfonica Nacional, which was in Slovenia. Mm -hmm. Because when you ask the audience to sing, the audience started to sing this folk song uh, in Slovenian in four-part harmony. That's true. So the whole audience... Yeah. The concert was completely sold out. It was a very important series of concerts. And people started singing this folk song. And I remember everyone in the orchestra just really going into tears. Yeah. From the experience of actually having an audience sing that way. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it inspired you to mm-hmm. give one of your wonderful. And then I have a third one, which is the first time you came to New Orleans. Um at the Mahalia Jackson Theater, mm-hmm. where you said that you would improvise not based on a certain melody, but based on something that mm-hmm. you had received from the city. Mm-hmm. And people still remember that improvisation wow. because that improvisation captured so much of what's New Orleans, um, you know, because it was happy, it was sad. It, it was it was tough, yet it was uplifting, uh, and in so so many ways, you you created something that you know if if it, if it were would be put on paper would probably already be a a, a classic New Orleans uh, hmm. experience. I remember 
those, but there there are more and there will be more, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the New Orleans one was right after Katrina. And I had gone around, you know, to see a little bit of the city. And of course, all the signs of what had happened were still there in different ways. And and I was really touched by the spirit of, of the people and the place. And, and I remember that improvisation was kind of like an homage, you know, to that spirit. So, yeah, there have been so many. And um, my God, if I start to think, um, I can think of some in Germany where... Sometimes you have 3,000, 4,000 people singing to me at the same time, which is so beautiful. And sometimes it gets really funny because in some publics, they think they're singing, but they're, it's, there's, no, there's no tune, there's no <laughs> harmony, there's no tonality. So I actually have to tune them at the piano and I give them a chord. I said, okay, all right, put away your wine. <laughs> Here we go. You know? But um, it's always a, a wonderful experience because... You know, some people say that classical music is elitist and it's uh, it's snobbish, and it's not. Our music is is about uh, telling stories and it's about experiences and it's about beauty and it's about uh, being committed to a listening experience with with a, a certain degree of depth, you know, and attention and involvement. And um, for me, one of the times when that that was most evident was. In that place you were talking about in, in Panama, in David, in that hotel resort, when we did that concert where the, the girl in the red dress was singing to impress you, Carlo, I'm sure, because that was not for me, okay? <laughs> and I remember that this audience that had never been to a classical music concert, had never heard Rahmaninov, had never heard a contemporary music piece like Expatria, they actually came to me after the performance and just kind of threw themselves on me, you know, trying to tell me what they had felt and what they had uh, gone through. And I was expecting them to tell me how beautiful Rahmaninov was and what beautiful sounds and, and romantic music. But instead, they were talking to me about expatria, how, you know, who they were as Latin Americans through the Venezuelan experience and through my piece really resonated with them. And they understood the musical language, even though it's, you know, it's quite a abrasive piece. But nevertheless, that shows you that human beings, when the story is clear, I mean, it doesn't matter the musical idiom. Let's fast forward to, I think it was 2015, when the two of you and the Orchestra of the Americas uh, worked together again to create another recording. In this case, it was, Gabriela, your first uh, full-length composition, your piano concerto number one, the Latin concerto. So can mm -hmm. I ask you, how was your process different or similar uh, when creating this piece compared to Expatria? Um, it's always the same. I mean, it's very improvisatory because that's just my nature. And I, I will sit down and basically create large chunks of the piece. Usually I, I will do the piano part first, not, not entirely, but you know, in sections. And the, the music just really comes to me. And then I orchestrate around it, or depending on whose protagonist where, you know, I will change the order, I will do things depending on what is needed. But it's a very quick process and very, very much like in a flow. And I knew exactly what I wanted to portray in this Latin American concerto. And the really difficult part came though when, when the score was ready, 
and I had to learn the piano parts that I wrote. Oh. And then I would complain at how difficult it is all the Who time. And this? Carlos knows this because I always say to Carlos after every performance, my God, this thing is so hard, you know? And I never get any sympathy from anyone because I wrote it, you know? I don't get sympathy from Carlos. I don't get sympathy from my husband, nobody. Because they say, well, you wrote it, you know? Tough luck. <laughs> and Carlos... What are some of your favorite memories from that project specifically in Frutillar? Well, Frutillar was a, in many ways a, a great achievement. Uh, first of all, because to be able to record uh, really in one of the most uh, sublimely beautiful corners of the world yes. and also far away corners of the world. <laughs> Uh, that was uh, that uh, was amazing. So it and and the the quality of the playing uh, by Gabriela as always incredible, but also the character in the orchestra, the character of the um, solo trumpet, the character of the clarinetist, the cl the, the character of the maracas, which mm -hmm. you must remember very well. Yeah. Everyone was not only giving their best, but they were giving their best from a perspective of their own um, experience and their, their own experience. For, for people who may not know this, <clears throat> this piece, it's a highly, highly sophisticated musical uh, piece, but it is also a highly idiomatic in the sense that it goes from something that could be a mambo and it finishes on uh, uh, fandango and it has all these different travels around Latin America, but not from a cheap postcard sense, but from a very deep understanding of what it means. Because uh, those of us who, who are from Latin America, we know that mambo is not this kind of uh, always happy dance that that is portrayed mm -hmm. in the old movies, but something that is actually very uh, sensual and very dramatic. Um, and it has a beautiful but beautiful second movement that is full of full of uh, this kind of longing, I would say, or 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 missing mm -hmm. home. Uh, missing home in, in many, many contexts. So th this concerto, my only criticism to this concerto is who will be able to play it <laughs> after you? <laughs> Because well. uh, it is a concerto that is so uh, unique to your abilities and to your... Um, Strength, because as, as I told you after the first performance, I think you get four <laughs> bars off. Yeah. Uh, so you're playing all the time. I mean, it is a difficult piece, and mainly because the rhythmical integrity during the whole piece where I have, I think it's, it's 12 bars off during the whole concerto. <laughs> I have to count. I, I should know this. I have to count them. But uh, let's say that I, I kind of made my life more difficult by always being there playing it and um and the thing about it is the rhythmical what happens in the left hand which is really really complex it's never an accompanying hand but it's it's as involved as the right hand and to maintain this kind of funky rhythm all the time and the stamina that you need and on top of that this project also involved filming the, the uh, whole recording was filmed filmed for arte mm -hmm. and in addition to that as if this was not challenging enough We also recorded Ravel Piano Concert in G Major. 
Yes. Can you guys talk to the pairing of those two pieces, Ravel uh, Concerto G Major and Euro Concerto, Gabi? Sure. Um, we wanted to create a, a CD, a recording that was very much about the Americas. Of course, it also reflects the spirit of the orchestra. And as a Venezuelan with the Latin Concerto, it was my way of saying we Latin Americans are exporting classical music to, to the old world which is, has always been the, the birthplace of classical music. And this is the time to do that. And then at the same time, Ravel is the opposite because it was Ravel meeting Gershwin in New York in, in the Americas and falling in love with jazz and falling in love with, with that sound world and that rhythmical world and then somehow trying to infuse his music with that language. So in the Ravel, Concerto, you have these jazzy idioms, and the Latin concerto has something, uh, let's say, like a brother sound, but in Latin American um, colors and, and harmonies and rhythms. So it was, I thought it was, we thought it was a wonderful way to uh, bring these two pieces together that somehow share a common ground. And for the orchestra, I mean, both of these pieces are not easy by any means. No, but they, they do go very well together because First of all, uh, the, the the Ravel speaks to um, a, an idiom that is curiously uh, similar in many ways, as Gabriela said. Uh, but Ravel was a composer who uh, was not shy in any way to show this kind of exuberance mm -hmm. and. Of course, it, the, the, the exuberance of, those, of, the, of the 20s and all that is something that's distinctly uh, French or that we actually, you know, got from, from Paris maybe and through New mm -hmm. York. But the fact that such a refined composer uh, was daring enough to put in some jazz mm -hmm. in there and to put in some other... Uh, popular idioms uh, made so, so many composers dare to do that same thing. You know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of that period mm -hmm. of time where uh, composers started opening the language of music to the language of what they heard uh, in the street or in their, in their youth. I mean, if you look at people like Copland, mm -hmm. Forzak, um, Revueltas in Mexico, Ravel, Gershwin, um, Ginastera, Villalobos. There's so, so many composers that, you know, suddenly they said, oh, classical music is not about Allegro, Andante, Adagio only. It is also about what mm -hmm. I hear outside my home or, or in a park. And that made classical music take a huge step forward uh, and and mm -hmm. your your concerto is a perfect example of that and actually what you have in your compositions which is uh, uh, so unique is that you join to that kind of let's say uh, folk element or folk uh, understanding uh, you have mm -hmm. a very personal and very moving, uh, dramatic story to tell about what you've gone through. And I don't want to, this 
conversation to get political or, or, or anything like that, but there is no doubt that the, the, the dramatic situation that you've had to go through as a Venezuelan has shaped your voice as, as a performer and as a composer. And that's, I think it's something that is very, very important because that same day, for example, that you say about the improvisation in Bellas Artes, because I remember that day very well, as you walked out, the number of flags of, of your country mm -hmm. in Bellas Artes that were either yeah. prominently placed or that were carefully uh, hidden yeah. <laughs> uh, was, was amazing. Yeah. And then when you play the concerto, you wear whatever you wear, but then when you play the improvisation, you come out with something mm -hmm. that, that is that has the colors of, of the flag of your country. You, you add it yeah. to, to your uh, attire. And that yes. you probably don't see in the audience, but that makes the audience completely understand what, what this is about and lose inhibition in order to show their own colors and show their own flags. So can you share with us uh, what that means and how that has shaped you as an artist, this drama that you have to live through? Well, you know, like you were saying about Ravel and the other composers that took cultural idioms or folklore idioms and used it in their, in their music, it's, that's when you become a social commentator in a way. And I think that since the Venezuelan situation became such a huge part of my life, not only because it affected me and the people that I love and my country and people that I've met and people that uh, have shared their terrible stories with me about the destruction of a whole country and experience that loss of home as well myself, um, everything that I do musically somehow goes back to being a social commentator because I, I fully uh, believe that you know, artists are, are not only um, equally responsible of, of telling stories and sharing information like anybody else, regardless of what you do in life, you know, what your job is or what, you, what your craft is, but even more, we have more of a duty to speak out because we have a platform and because we have a public voice. So, the Venice, you know, denouncing the Venezuelan situation as an Amnesty International Honorary Consul and as a composer and performer has been the most painful thing I've ever had to do because I've had to confront an incredible amount of uh, pain and sorrow and evil and injustice. And it's not a natural position for a person to be in. It's not a natural position for an artist to, to have to endure. But um, it, it was just a very conscious decision because I care and that's the only reason. So yes, you're right to say that it's changed or affected everything I do as, a, as an artist and as a person because it's fundamental in, in, in who I am and what I, what I feel and what I know because I, there is so much of the story that has, is still not understood by the world. But with time, I think the world will understand just how destructive and um, unjust and tyrannical the last 20 years have been for Venezuela. And we have lost everything. And I think that's really the bottom line. You know, what do you do when, when you see that everything has been lost? Do you speak up or do you stay silent? 
and I made my choice over 10 years ago. It hasn't been easy, but I would do it again. Well, I, I have to say that we recognize, first, that it hasn't been easy. Second, that you've been amazingly brave. Thank you. And third, that you've done it very, very well. Thank you. And um, that uh, I think the Orchestra of the Americas has been your your friend and will be your friend and I will be your ally for whatever chance I get to do uh, things with you um, because we're, we're getting close to the end of this beautiful conversation which which should have a part two <laughs> pretty yes, soon. Please. I want to make sure that that everyone knows that what you communicate and what the Orchestra of the Americas communicate on stage is an incredibly joyful experience. Whatever the drama that we face in our different communities and whatever the drama that we face as human beings, mm-hmm. we always, with you, communicate this incredible joy. I agree. Gabi, there's one final thing I want to ask you. Yeah. You, as an artist and a, a performer and a composer, inspire thousands of people, myself included, and, and, and anybody who's been, you know, in an orchestra playing with you. Who has been a, a musical hero of yours or a mentor for whom you feel grateful? There have been a few people. I think most significantly the great Argentinian pianist Marta Argerich, who has been like a godmother, a musical godmother to me, and pretty much literally more or less changed my life uh, when I was 31 because I, I wasn't really playing at that point. I wasn't sure that I wanted to continue my life in music because I just felt felt it was so isolating and self-driven. I wanted to do something that helped people that, you know, where there was, where I could work with people and I could be with people. And uh, she basically heard me and then got me off my backside and said, okay, off you go, you have to play here, 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 there, and started talking to people about me. And that really kind of restarted my life uh, in, in this phase, which has been totally crazy the last, uh, oh my God, almost 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but uh, she has been uh, pivotal in, in my life in many ways. And also as an artist, such an amazing musician, spirit, everything. And I'm very lucky to have really amazing people in my life. Generally, the people that I admire are the people who just are selfless and really give and really do things with their hearts and and give everything that they have to the best of their abilities. I I want to just say that we, we could not have chosen a better example of what it is to be an artist, what it is to be a musician. Thank you. Uh, I can only imagine uh, what you've gone through and what you're going through these days. And I am sure, absolutely sure, that we are going to get from Gabriela Montero a very, very interesting response to these days. <laughs> and I cannot thank you enough for participating in, in this experience. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me. Gracias, Gabi. I'm Carlos Miguel Prieto. And I am Raul Gomez. Talk to you next time. Post is a production of the Orchestra of the Americas Group with additional support provided by MYS Portland. Visit theoagroup.org backslash soundpost to learn more.
have no idea how to turn this off. Sam. Ha <laughs> ha